Thank you for listening to this week's message from New Day Community Church in Vandalia. We hope this message encourages and blesses you. Look us up and contact us at newdaycommunity.org. So today we are starting our series on First Peter. And I really, really believe, I really am excited um, that there's going to be uh, some... Uh, some really powerful impact in our lives because in this short letter um, there is so much for us even though it was written 2,000 years ago right it is very applicable to where we are today and I think one of the really awesome things about scripture about the the Bible is that it was even though you know it was certainly written in history Right? It was written to specific people or a specific person by people written for a specific purpose. Right? And if we can take the time to kind of get in and understand what that original author's intention was, what those original hearers would have understood, you know, then we can much more accurately understand what God is saying to us. Because this, uh, uh, the, the Bible is culturally uh, or contextually sound, regardless of what our culture is, right? Like, in, it was impactful to that culture in the first century, but it's also contemporarily written for us today. So God had it all in mind when he had this written, as he joined with the human authors in, in writing his word. So we're going to try to understand this morning what his intention was. And today it's going to be just kind of a broad overview of the context of this letter. Um, then after today, for the next seven weeks, we're going to be breaking it down into chunks and kind of drilling down a little bit into this book. So today it's going to be a broad overview, and we're going to look at who wrote it. We're going to look at when it was written. Uh, we're going to look at what was happening during the time and why it was written. And then we're going to kind of see how we can apply these overarching themes of this uh the book of First Peter, to our lives today. All right? And I think that this understanding is going to help us to see what God is saying today. All right, and so as we jump in, it, we're going to see that First Peter is a letter of hope. It's a letter of encouragement. It's written to a community of believers who are undergoing suffering. They're undergoing persecution. We're going to see that it's a letter that is intended to encourage the hearers to, to stand strong and to live holy and faithful lives in the, in the face of this suffering. And so what I want to do this morning to help us to kind of to latch on to what was happening in this letter, I want to look at a popular movie that I think can help us to understand the story of hope. You ready for this? All right. So, what? that's not Star Wars. This is the X-Men. All right. Has anybody watched the X-Men? Not anybody. Nobody will admit it. That's it. All right. All right, so the X-Men, let me, let me explain kind of the story. Mark, how does this possibly apply to the letter of First Peter? So the X-Men were outcasts, okay? The X-Men, were, they're, they're called mutants, right? And they have these special powers, but everybody distrusts them. Everybody is scared of them, all the normal people. They look at them with fear, and they, they, they think, we just need to lock these people up. We need to imprison them. We need to kill them. We need to get rid of them because they are not trustworthy. They are dangerous. And we also see um, that in the, in the 
the first century, the people that Peter was writing to, that they, they are also considered outcasts. They don't have a place in society. Right? And then the X-Men, uh, their leader is Professor Xavier, and he has this power where he can go out and he can find these other mutants, right? And he, so he, he goes out and he finds these mutants and he brings them back to, um, what is it called? Professor Xavier's, uh, School for Gifted Youngsters, right? And so he, he brings them back, <laughs> he brings them back in, and he, in, these outcasts, these mutants, these people who don't have a home, who don't have a place, who are hated and looked down on, they find a place where they are in community, right? They find a place where they are loved, where they're trained, where they are accepted, right? And so they find a, a, a community of like-minded people in this school for gifted youngsters. And then as they are trained up and they're healed up, and and I might be reading a little bit into the X-Men, but just go with me here a little bit. So after they they are happily in this family, right, in in the, the school, they are then sent back out into the world. They're sent back out in the world to find other outcasts, to find other mutants, to bring them into the family. But what is interesting and what I think uh, ties into the culture of First Peter is that the X-Men were sent to save and protect the very people who would um, look down on them, who would imprison them, who would kill them if given the chance. And so the X-Men are sent out to, to help and protect the very people who are persecuting them. And as we step from that world into the, the context of First Peter, we see that it's the exact same situation. A rel- okay, exact same might be a bit much. A relatively similar situation. Um, so the, that we see these uh, a community of believers who are looked down on and they are sent out to be salt and light in their community. All right, so take that, remember that, if you want to take the X-Men, stick a pin in that. We'll come back to that. OK, so we're going to now we're going to jump back into the historical context of First Peter. You guys excited? It's like a history class today. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. So, OK, so who wrote First Peter? I already told you it's in the name. There it is. Yeah, it's Peter. And all right. All right. There's a lot of people named Peter. Which Peter is it? And this is the Peter that we first meet in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. And it says this. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they're casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. All right, so this is the Peter. We remember um, if we grew up in the church, we probably heard this story in, in Sunday school, right? And so this is Peter. Jesus comes up and says, hey, drop your nets, come follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. And so Peter and Andrew drop their nets and they follow Jesus. So Peter is one of the original disciples. And so there's 12 disciples as we read through the, the Gospels that uh, followed Jesus for three years, and they, they listened to him teach, right? They um, walked throughout Palestine with him. They watched him do miracles. They watched him cast out demons. They watched him heal sick people. They watched him raise dead people, right? They watched him feed 5,000 men, plus probably women and children, with the, the lunch of one boy, Right, So they watched Jesus do all this amazing stuff, and Peter 
was one of them. But interestingly, not only was Peter one of the original 12, um, for, for lack of a better term, he's kind of in the top three of disciples. He is, uh, as, we, as we read through the, the gospel narrative, we see that often Jesus will take James and John and Peter off by themselves to do something special, right? And I don't know what the other nine felt about this. Maybe they were just happy that, hey, at least we're in the top 12, right? That's good. You know, but we see Jesus going, hey, James, John, and Peter, let's go over here. And, um, and we see, what did they do? They went on the Mount of Transfiguration. That would have been impressive. Right. And Peter's up there and he sees Jesus transformed and glorified right before his very eyes. Right. He hears the voice of God. Oh, that must have been incredibly amazing and awesome for Peter. And we also see in the the New Testament that Jesus invites all the disciples up to the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus is betrayed. And he says, we're going to let's pray about what's going to happen. Then he takes James, John and Peter off by themselves and they pray together. And so Peter was very, very close to Jesus. We probably remember the story that Peter was the guy who stepped out of the boat, who walked on water with Jesus for a minute. Um, he also, we remember the, the terrible story that, that Peter actually denied Jesus, right? After Peter stands up and says, even if everybody else falls away, even if everybody else turns their back on you, Jesus, I never will. And then, unfortunately, in, in the midst of this crisis, Peter denies that he ever even knew Jesus. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. It seems like this is certainly going to be the end for Peter. Jesus is like, sorry, Peter. Remember when you said you wouldn't, you wouldn't deny me? There it is. You're done. But Jesus, we see in the Gospels, and Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, comes back and talks to Peter one-on-one and draws him back in. And then publicly, in front of all the other disciples, he reinstates Peter as one of the core 12, right? Well, 11 at that point. So we see, even though maybe some of them, maybe Thomas was like, oh, this is my chance, I'm in the top three. Oh, Peter's back. No? Sorry. Woo! Okay, that didn't work. Okay, moving on. Peter also, in the, in the, uh, on the day of Pentecost, right, he's hiding in the upper room, um, because he's afraid that him and the other disciples are going to get arrested and crucified just like they crucified Jesus, right? The Jews are out to crush this cult of Christ, right? And so he's scared. They're hiding. The, the Holy Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost. And here Peter is radically transformed. He's radically transformed. And now he's out on the street preaching that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, directly to the very people who had crucified him just a few weeks earlier. And so we see that Peter is no longer afraid. He's boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ. And so because this is the Peter that wrote um, this letter that we're going to look at, that is one of the reasons why we give this letter so much weight and so much importance. That is why this letter made it into the canon of Scripture. Peter is, uh, has the, the weight of the, an apostolic authority. You know, he is one of our, our fathers. And so when he speaks, we listen. And so even though this letter was written to a specific people at a specific time, God inspired this and so that it also is speaking to us in our time. 
And so it carries the weight of apostleship from Peter. Okay, so now we know who it was that wrote 1 Peter. Who was he writing to? And we see in chapter 1-1, it says Peter is writing to God's elect scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And this map is a little bit too small, so it's probably impossible to see. But these provinces are what was considered Asia Minor at the time and is now modern-day Turkey. And at the time, all that, that kind of pink and the green and the yellow and, and the purple, that was all the area of Asia Minor that this letter was written to. Um, and what is significant about this is that they... Um, these are all Roman provinces. So the Roman Empire controls all of this area. And what's interesting is that they are God's elect. So they're Christ followers that are scattered throughout the provinces. All right. And so they are exiles who were scattered. What we're what I think is important to understand uh, about the context is that these the Christians here in Asia Minor, they were not locals. This isn't where they grew up. This isn't um, where you know they were born or whatever. They were exiles who were scattered. This is called kind of the dispersion um, that they they flew they fled flew they fled from uh, Jerusalem. We can see in the the story of Acts or the book of Acts that the the Jews were uh, persecuting the Christ followers in Jerusalem, and so they scattered. Uh, throughout the, the Roman Empire, right? And so they got out of Dodge, as it were, and some of them landed up here in Asia Minor. And that's who Paul, no, Peter, is writing to. And the fact that they were exiles is significant. It, the, um, the Roman Empire, when they would talk about these Christ followers, these exiles, they, they didn't really have a place for them in their social hierarchy, Right, and so they placed them somewhere above slaves. They weren't slaves, but they were certainly below citizens. Right, and so these people, the Christ followers, the, the exiles that were scattered up here, were uh, in an incredibly low social condition. Right, and so we see that this um, term, exiles scattered, refers to their social situation more than it does to their spiritual situation. Right. We often when we we read first Peter, we kind of can start by just kind of spiritualizing it. Right. And like, oh, they're spiritual aliens, they're spiritual foreigners, which in a sense was true, but not specifically what Peter was addressing. He was addressing that these are socially marginalized resident aliens. Okay, and so they were disenfranchised workers. They were just barely able to get by. And they had a lot of restrictions in their society, who they could marry, the kind of land or the amount of land that they could hold. They were not allowed to vote. They were not allowed to uh, be part of civic um, associations. They were actually taxed higher than the, the citizens were, so it was more expensive for them to live there. And they were uh, punished more severely when they got in trouble. You know, they were looked down on, they were mistrusted, and so they got more severely punished than the citizens. They did not have the same rights as the citizens in their culture. Okay? So what we see is that they were set apart. They didn't have a place. They did not fit in. And J.H. Eliot is a commentary writer, and he said that they were viewed as threats to established order 
and native well-being. And that is, this, that is the, the cultural context that we find these people living in. They were constantly exposed to, to fear and suspicion. They were slandered and they were discriminated against and they were manipulated. They were just struggling, marginalized people. And that is who Peter is writing to. Interesting so far. <laughs> Stick with me. It's, it's good. This is going to be great. So when, when was First Peter written? All right, we know who wrote it. We know uh, who he wrote it to. But when was it written? Because that is going to affect how we read the, the, this letter. Okay? And we know that it had to be written before 64 or 65 A.D. If, if Peter actually wrote it, and we believe that Peter wrote it, because Peter was martyred under Emperor Nero in 64-65 A.D. And in a minute, we're going to talk a little bit more uh, about Nero. And he was not a pleasant fellow. He was not pleasant. No, he was bad. Um, and so we know it was written before 64-65 A.D. And we also know some of the things that are happening to these people because they are obviously undergoing persecution They're enduring a a lot of trials because the Greek word that is translated suffer, suffered, or suffering is used 18 times in this relatively short letter, just five chapters. And that is in addition to the beginning of Peter, 1 Peter. It says, uses a different word. It's not suffering. Um, So in verse 6, he says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have made to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And we see that Peter is really driving this point home, that, yeah, things are tough, things are difficult. And then near the end of the, the letter he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to you to test you. And so if we add all the words that are suffering and trial and ordeal and testing, there's, there's like 25 to 30 different words being used peppered throughout this this uh, letter. And so we know that they're enduring some sort of a persecution. And so that is why historians and commentarians land that it was written between 62 and 65 A.D. near the beginning of the Christian persecution under Emperor Nero. And so maybe you're asking, Mark, who cares? When it was written. Well, if we understand the context of what this was written into, it helps us to see what Peter's intention was. We can see the plight of these um, early Christians, and we know that it's not like they, you know, it's like, oh, what, what were they, what were they, was their persecution that bad? You know, maybe people just didn't like them. That doesn't seem that bad, you know. But when we understand the depth of the persecution that these people were enduring, we can understand that not only, you know, does that apply to us, but they're probably enduring more than we ever have before, right? And so we can apply that into our lives and know that we, and even if we are enduring this persecution, as many, many, many Christians are across the world, that it doesn't mean that God has forgotten us or abandoned us because he didn't abandon these people back in the early 60s A.D. All right, and so we know it was written between 62 and 65 during the beginning of the Christian persecution under Emperor Nero. And like I said, um, Emperor Nero was bad. And to kind of give us a picture of what was happening, I wanted to read something by the Roman historian Tacitus. 
And I know you guys were like, well, this, Mark, this is kind of a boring historical thing. But, oh, good, now you're going to read a historian from the first century. This is going to get exciting. So we're going to read this. It actually is pretty good. In May of, not in, not in May. Oh, yeah, in May of 64 AD. That's right in my notes. In May of 64 AD, a huge fire breaks out in Rome. And Emperor Nero is blamed for it. And he does not like that. And so he decides that he needs to blame somebody else for this. He needs to kind of get some of the heat off of him and, you know, and we'll just accuse somebody else and they can take all, all the blame. And so he's looking around. And he says, who should I blame for this fire that has destroyed Rome? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll blame the Christians because people already don't like them. People already mistrust them. And so they will believe it when I say this. And this is what Tacitus said about this situation. Um, To suppress the rumor, uh, Emperor Nero falsely charged with the guilt and punishment with the most exquisite tortures, the persons commonly called Christians, who are hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. And so, interestingly, as an aside, this is one of the extra-biblical accounts of Jesus Christ actually existing. Um, So we know we can find Jesus in the Bible, but some people are like, oh, did he actually exist? Yes, we have Tacitus talks about him, another Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, and some other people actually write about Jesus. And these are non-Christians. Right? They don't believe that Jesus was the Savior. But what they do say is that there was a guy who led some people, and he started a thing, and he did a bunch of stuff that we can't quite explain, and his name was Jesus. All right, And I think we have a little bit clearer picture of who Jesus was through uh, the, the New Testament, luckily. But, interesting, there is historical evidence that Jesus actually walked around and did awesome things. Where was I? That was free. Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But this pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again, not only throughout Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, where all things horrible and disgraceful flow. So Tacitus apparently didn't much care for the Christians, but he also didn't much care for Rome. He's apparently kind of an angry dude. Um, So accordingly, first three were seized who confessed that they were Christians. Next, on their information, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much on the charge of burning the city as of hating the human race. And in their deaths, they were also made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to, and when day declined, burned to serve for nocturnal nocturnal lights." And so this is the kind of stuff that the Christians during this time were enduring. All right? And maybe they weren't in the, in the heart of this persecution yet, but they were already, they were mistrusted, they were persecuted, they were looked down on, and they were kind of, they're kept under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And these people were struggling in the midst of it. So why was this letter written? Well, just like all, uh, for, uh, New Testament letters, it was written in response to what was happening in the culture. And so these people, these Christ followers in Asia Minor, they were probably asking questions like, 
what are we supposed to do in this situation? Scott McKnight, another commentarian, says, how should we live? Talking about the Christians. How should we live in this social context of social exclusion and persecution? That's what the, the Christians were asking Peter. What are we supposed to do here? You know, should we escape? Maybe we should become, um, what are those people called that live in monasteries out in the desert? Like, we should become monks. We should become, <laughs> I'm a professional. We should become monks. Maybe we should just get away from here, right? Or maybe we could just withdraw from society and we'll still kind of live here, but we're just not going to kind of engage with people because that's scary out there, right? Or maybe we should just turn a cold shoulder to our world. Or, better yet, maybe if we got some milk crates, we could stand on street corners and, and preach fire and brimstone and tell them that they're all going to hell. Do you think that would work, Peter? Maybe that's a good answer. All right? And so these are the kind of questions that the Christians in Asia Minor are asking in the first century. And we see that Peter's response doesn't really, he just says, he basically says, no, you shouldn't run away. No, you shouldn't preach fire and brimstone. No, you shouldn't avoid the culture, right? And he writes them and he encourages them to live well in the midst of their suffering. And my PowerPoint is very small. I apologize about that. But in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, and here we have it repeated again from, the, from chapter 1, foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires. Live such godly lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So he basically is saying, no, don't withdraw from society. Live well. Live lives. Right. Let your good deeds be seen. And so perhaps if these pagans that you're living in the midst of see your good deeds, they will turn and glorify God. That is Peter's encouragement. And Peter also encourages them to endure suffering because Christ also endured suffering. Right? He says, what good is it if you endure suffering because you're doing something bad? That's no good. But if you're living right, if you're following Jesus well and you are being persecuted in your suffering, well, that's great because the same thing happened to Jesus. And that must have been a difficult thing to kind of swallow because that doesn't sound easy. Right? And so then Peter continues on and he encourages them to hold on to hope. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So he says, hold on to hope. I know that things are difficult. I know this is really, really hard. But remember, what you are enduring right now is not the end of the story. You have an eternal hope. Jesus has prepared a place for you. This is just a temporary situation. And live righteously, live holy lives in this place, knowing that you have an eternal, glorious, eternal hope waiting for you. And he says a similar thing in 1 Peter 4, but for time's sake, we're going to skip that one. We'll get back to that in a few weeks. So why was 1 Peter written? It was written to... Uh, And this, I think, for me, 
as I studied this book, preparing for this message, this significantly jumped out at me more than I've, I don't know if I've ever really seen this as I've read through 1 Peter before. But 1 Peter is specifically written to encourage these Christ followers to live well in their community, in their faith community, in the midst of these other Christians. Why do you say that, Mark? Well, in chapter 3.8, it says... Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. And he says this in the context of community, to to be like-minded with your fellow believers. Love one another, be compassionate and humble. Then he says, uh, in a chapter later, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. He's saying that you guys are enduring this persecution and this, and this hardship, and so it makes no sense that your community and your friendships would fall apart. You guys need to stick together and love each other because in your, in those relationships, you are strengthened to endure these things that you are being persecuted with. It's within relationships. So don't let, you know, dishonor or discord or, you know, unforgiveness reign in your community. Love each other um, deeply. And finally, in chapter 4, he says, use whatever gifts you've received to serve others. So serve your community. And in 2.17, show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And so we see over and over and over again... Peter is encouraging them to live well in the midst of their community, right? Here it says, love the family of believers. Love your friends. Love your church. Love your people, right? And he says, honor the emperor. And the emperor was Nero, who was a real nasty dude. I, I don't know. Selah. Think about that one. That's interesting. Um, okay, so we're out of time. How do we apply this today? And I think the application for this kind of overarching uh, look at First Peter is that we belong to a family. As Christ followers, as, as uh, people here planted in this community, we have a family of believers right here, and we're part of the, the bigger community of faith, right, with Christians um, all over the world. Right? We belong to the family of God. And regardless of what our circumstances are, what our social or our economic or our physical circumstances are, they do not determine our hope, right? We know where we're headed. We know what is waiting for us on the other side of eternity. We know what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. We are going to be bodily resurrected and we are going to live for eternity with God. That is our hope. In our circumstances, even if we're sick or we have a hard time paying the rent or we lose a job or the furnace breaks or all these things happen, we know that these circumstances don't mean that God has forgotten us, that he doesn't care about us, that he doesn't think that we are important. Because First Peter teaches us that God loves us in the midst of trials, and trials do not reveal God's character. The cross reveals God's character. That he died for us. And this is my last little bit. It says, Scott McKnight says, While they were socially strange and foreign in Asia Minor, while they were excluded, powerless, and homeless in the Roman Empire, in God's family, they are citizens. They are included. They are royalty. And they are at home as God's people.
We see this story of this disenfranchised people that have no place in society. Peter even says, you were once not a people. You don't have a place. You don't belong. But then in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but now... Because of what Christ has done, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So powerful. And so we know that we can stand secure in our identity as sons and daughters of God. We know the end of the story. Right? We know that God defeats sin and death, and we spend eternity in peace and in pleasure. Right? And as Paul says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And that is what we can hold on to. That is the teaching of First Peter, and we're going to dive more into that. But let's just close this, this morning, and let's just pray. And we're just going to ask God just to to kind of write those things on our hearts and those identities on our hearts today.